Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series, the Book of Philippians, we'll explore the lessons we can learn from the Book of Philippians related around joy in the midst of suffering. Let's turn now to part three of the series, The Struggle is Real. Have you ever thought uh, for just a minute, have you ever thought about what your viewing activity on Netflix says about you as a person? You ever thought about this? Or, or maybe the recommendations that Netflix has for you or anything. Maybe Netflix is not your thing. It's Disney Plus or HBO Max or whatever it is for you. I, I had this, you know, it's one thing to think about this personally, like look through your list and be like, this is what it says about me. It's another thing to have someone else look at your list and tell you what it says to you about, as a person. This week, uh, as many of you know, I went to the beach. I had a great time, and, but it was about a four and a half hour drive. So my wife and I had all the time in the world to talk on the way down. And as we were going down, she was telling me about a conversation she had had this past week with some of my former students. And uh, some of my students, uh, and I didn't know this at the time, but we had let them house sit for us. And so they picked up our Netflix account. They just started watching whatever they wanted to when they got into the house. And they said, Pastor Sam's Netflix account is really weird, but it's really accurate as well. (laughs) Like, it's spot on. They said, we started flipping through it. And it was nothing but endless documentaries and stand-up comedians. And they were like, that explains everything about who he is, right? And I thought about that today. I don't, I don't know what yours says about you or how that is. Mine would be completely different today. Like, if you picked up my account today, first of all, it wouldn't be Netflix. It'd be like this weird conglomeration of a whole lot of things. But I was like, what would my life say today? And I was like, okay, so it's Nine Perfect Strangers, Ted Lasso, Handmaiden's Tale and Lulu Rich. Like, that's me in a nutshell. And if you can figure out what that says about me, you're better than I am. Like, I have no idea what that says when you combine, like, you know, a post-apocalyptic wasteland with a multi-level marketing scam gone wrong and a European football fantasy all combined in there with a healing journey on the other side of hallucinogenics. Um, if you can figure that out, you've probably lived through 2020 and 2021. That's, that's all that says about me as a person. But that's, that's where I am. And as I thought about that former self, the like documentary and, and comedian thing, I was like, yeah, that, that's probably true. I want to take in as much input as I can, and then I just want to laugh at the world. That, those two realities for me are kind of side by side, and I constantly live into those realities all the time. And some of you may not know, you know, may not get that because... Like, anybody really loves stand-up comedy? Do I have any lovers? we got a few out there who like stand-up comedy. i got a few back here. Like, my wife doesn't get it. Right? I, I love stand-up comedians, and it really doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter, like, what lines they push. Like, you'd watch some of my stuff, and you'd be like, really, you've watched that? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And, and I know she doesn't get it. Some of you may not get it. That's okay. The reason I love comedy and stand-up comedians in particular is because they are a group of people who constantly love to break boundaries, right? Within the context of comedians, nothing is sacred. And that's both terrifying on one hand, and it's also liberating on the other hand. But for me, what they always do, they have this keen way of finding joy in suffering. And the way that you can tell whether or not, or where the suffering is, is 
whether or not you're on the other side of their joke, right? Like, if, if they're making fun of you, that's the suffering. Everybody else finds joy in it. But they, they create these boundaries, and then they smash the boundaries that they create. There's no limits. There's no taboos. There's nothing off limits when it comes to what a comedian will say, usually. There, there are some. They've reached some of those boundaries at times. And hear me out before I go any further. Boundaries are important, all right? Limits are important. We have social taboos and norms in society. Those are important. But as a society, and I really want us to get this one point, we often build boundaries in our lives to protect our power, to protect our control of the world that we have. And you'd be like, no, 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 I, I have boundaries in my life to protect the things I love. And, and I might say, well, yeah, I could see that. I, build defen- I built a fence in my backyard. I built it so that my son wouldn't run in the road. I wanted to protect my son in that regard. The other way of looking at that, the flip side of looking at that, is that I built the fence so that I could control where my son goes. Because I like the version of my son standing more than I like the version of my son hit by a car. Right? And so there's a sense of control that's bound up and connected to this idea that we build boundaries just around things that we love. There's always this element of love somewhere buried within it, but there's also control that tells us exactly how our love can be demonstrated. So boundaries are there to protect the things that we control, and when we can control them, we can predict them, we can hold them exactly where we want to. And what a comedian does is they come in and they completely destroy, with the power of irony, they destroy that barrier. They break it down, they rip it apart. And the difference between the funny joke that you laugh at and the the offensive joke is all determined on where you're standing in relationship to that barrier. Am I on that, that safe side of the barrier, or am I on this side of the barrier? In fact, I, if anybody watched AGT, Josh Blue, the comedian who has CP, did an incredible job of this in his final act. He stood up and he started making fun of how scientists move Botox from a product that could help solve CP, or, or kind of cure CP, to a product that would eliminate our wrinkles, right? And he did it specifically knowing that Simon Cowell is a vocal advocate of Botox. He stood up there on the stage and just ripped him apart and never called him out, never said a word about him, but all the while, Simon Cowell's the one who said, Botox has added 10 years to my life, and he's up there going, oh yeah, it it made sense to try and create a product that would solve CP, and then we're like, wait a minute, let's not do that. Let's do something that's really valuable and cure people's wrinkles, right? And so depending on where you sit in the context of that conversation, determines whether or not you will find offense in what they do. And to, and to highlight this, this element of joy and power and balance, all we have to do is look at the com- comedians amongst us. The level of our joy corresponds in life to the level of control we have in our circumstances. And when our control is lost, when you've lost control of your family, when you've lost control at the job, when you've lost control in your environments, our joy seems to go out the window. We lose it very quickly in those environments. And so I would suggest, as I have all week, we need, we need a new relationship with time and how we perceive time in order to have joy. We need a new perspective on life in order to gain and regain joy in life. But we also need a new perspective on power in order to understand how you can consistently be filled with joy in your life. We need this sort of new relationship because power plays a critical role in the level of joy that you are going to experience in your life no matter where you are in life. Our demand for power is the one thing that keeps us cycling in and out of joy. And if you don't like power, just use the word control. 
My ability to control the environment around me is the one thing that keeps me cycling in and out of joy. That's why it's hard to find joy in the middle of struggle, because in struggle or in suffering, we are losing power. We've lost control in the context of our suffering moments, and in losing control, we lose our joy or our satisfaction. And there's no place quite like this than a prison, right? Prisons highlight for us the ultimate way to make a person miserable. They have no control in their life. I tell you where to sleep. I tell you where to sit for dinner. I tell you what you can eat, what you can't eat. I tell you uh, when you can eat, when you can't eat. I tell you when you can go to the shower. I tell you who you will sleep with. I tell you where you will, what room you'll be in. I tell you all those things you no longer have any control in your life. Every part of your life in that context is under the control of someone else. And of course, this entire reality is set up to make you miserable because you have no control over your life. You can't control your actions. If you can't control your actions in a responsible way that's life-giving to society, we're going to take all control away from you. We're going to strip you of the ability to make any decisions, and the end result of that, you're miserable, right? You, you despise your life. You despise the setting that you're in because everything is out of your control and your joy is gone. Now, this is the exact type of scenario that Paul is in. This is everything that the Roman prison guards were doing to Paul. They were stripping him of all control. They were stripping him of all rights to speak to the world around him, hoping that it would strip him of his joy and leave him miserable. And when Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church, this is exactly where he is, in an environment where the people around him are trying to strip him of his control so that he can become miserable. But in the context, they forget that Paul has a different relationship with power. They could pull every bit of joy out by pulling the circumstances away, but Paul's, Paul's relationship to power is grounded in an entirely different place. And he could have been miserable in prison because they stripped him of that, but even greater threat to his joy is the fact that because he's in prison, everybody on the outside of prison is looking at him differently. I spoke last week about this sort of shame culture that's surrounding Paul, and the moment that Paul ended up in prison, everyone who followed Paul Everyone who admired Paul, everyone who thought that Paul had influence and leadership in their lives, they all turned their back on him. They all shamed him because they thought the gods or God was punishing Paul for something wrong that he had done, that he had landed in a wrong theological camp, and because of that, they could no longer associate with him. So every bit of influence that Paul had on the outside of prison was also threatened. Every bit of control and power he had over people outside the prison was gone. And so this is the far greater threat to Paul's joy. And that's why I think, I think a core of his letter on joy is meant to address those specific concerns. Paul's not like us sometimes, you know, who avoid the elephant in the room. Paul is the type of guy who just plunges right into the elephant in the room. He wants to call it out, name it exactly what it is, and that's what he does here. He addresses this issue head on. But how he addresses this reality is really what makes the difference in your joy and my joy. And it made the difference in his joy back then. In the third chapter, if you want to turn there with me, we're going to put it, for those who are watching at home, we'll put it on the screen, but if you're here, just turn with me to the third chapter of Philippians. This is where we'll start. Because even though he addresses his accusers early on, by the time we get to the third chapter, he wants to talk very directly about them. And in chapter 3, verse 2, here's what he says. He says to the Philippian church, please beware of the dogs. That's how he starts it out. Beware of the dogs who are out there. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Now, just for a little bit of historic context here, he's opening up this letter talking about dogs or evil workers or mutilators of the flesh. 
by addressing a group we call the Hebraists. This is a group of early Christians who insisted that in order to be a part of the way, to be followers of Jesus Christ, you had to follow all the practices of Judaism. And one of those practices for men was circumcision, right? So if you're a Greek and you don't get circumcised, you got to do that. I don't care if you're 40 years old when you become a follower of Jesus Christ. If you want to be a follower, you've got to do this. And so there's this group out there who are insistent that the way they practice their religion has to do with how they orient their bodies, how they control their bodies, and how they control their environment around them through certain practices and those types of things. And so when Paul talks about the dogs, the evil workers, the mutilators of the flesh, that's exactly who he's talking about. And contextually, this is what they're saying. Paul is in prison because he was wrong. We are not in prison because we were right. You do need to follow what we're saying. You need to follow what we're doing. And so Paul feels attacked by this, and he also needs to address this. He understands this tactic that they're pulling, that they have all power in the world. They've controlled their bodies in the best way possible. They've been really good at observing their faith and their religion, and they are free because of it. And Paul is locked up because he didn't do a good job. He's a bad preacher. He's a bad leader. He's all these things, and he is exactly where he is. They're free. He's not. They're on the outside. He's on the inside. They've grounded their power. They have joy. He doesn't have joy. And Paul could play this game. Paul wants you to know he could play this game. He could absolutely say the exact same things to them because he has been upright in his life. In fact, in verse 4, he goes on, he says, look, I have reason to be confident in the flesh. I could have all, all that confidence that I need in the flesh and in my ability to control the world around me. Look how he goes on. If anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Like I'm, be, I'm, I'm even better than what they are. He goes on, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of my life, which is the earliest day he could be. He's a member of the people of Israel. He's a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew born of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. He observed everything within the law as strictly as he could. As to his zeal, he was a persecutor of the early church. As to his righteousness, he was under the law and he was completely blameless. He did all of the things right. He followed it. Even though he's now proclaiming a gospel that says, you don't need to be circumcised, Paul says, that's not me. I actually was circumcised. I actually did all the things. I could certainly boast in this way. I carry the marks of power and control in my body and I'm still not free. I did all the things, and I'm still locked up. My control has been stripped away from me. My power is there. I'm in, I'm in prison. And his opponents are like, yeah, you started preaching something else. Of course you're in prison. That's, that's what we're trying to say. Paul says, wait a minute, I'm not done. I'm not finished with this. Let me go on. And so he continues in verse 7. He says, yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as a complete loss because of Christ. Peterson interprets this verse, Eugene Peterson, in the message, he offers this paraphrase, and I love what he says. He says, the very credentials that these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing them up. I'm tearing them up, I'm throwing them out with the trash. And you ask why I'm doing this? I'll tell you why. Because of Christ. Christ is the reason that I tear up all these credentials of power and control in my life. Yes, all of these things that I once thought were so important, they're gone from me in my life. I have all the things. I had all the things. I did all the things. I collected all the things. I controlled all the things. And guess what? They were garbage, he says. They were terrible. I thought I was in control. I thought I had mastered all of these things in my life. And it was all a facade. It was all a superficial reality. 
And he takes it one step further. And this, Paul really pushes the limit as he goes into this next verse. In verse 8, he says, More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And look what he says in the last part of that verse. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish. Now, this is the New Revised Standard Version. I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know what the better word for this would be? Dog poop, right? That's what it is. I could, I could say an even worse word, but I'll just leave it at that. You can say it in your mind. You can even mouth it to me. I don't care what you do. But it's like dog poop, right? That's what it is. I regard everything. And, and the reason that, that it's probably more clear that it's dog poop is because he called them dogs at the beginning. You know what he's saying? He's saying these evil dogs that are out there, they prefer their dog poop. That's what they prefer to go back to. They prefer to be in that. And, and Paul says this, and I keep saying it over and over again. You guys are like, this is so uncomfortable right now. Because he wanted them to be uncomfortable. He wanted them to be disgusted by an element of religion that they found grounding. And so he used, when he wrote this down, he didn't use the sort of medical term. This isn't fecal matter that he's talking about. It's just straight up steaming hot pile of dog poop. Right? That's what he's talking about. And he wants everybody who hears that read out loud to feel the level of disgust that he's writing with the elements of religion that they're proposing. Paul doesn't deny that there's some sort of power there, but what he does suggest is that the power that they're holding on to is one that is vacuous and leaves us. What he said of their desire could also be said of our desire. Anytime we want to cling to a status of power in our lives, we found in this world, we cling to a mess of our own making. We cling to something that is as valuable as dog poop. That's why we're always craving for more. It just slips right through us faster than Taco Bell on a good Sunday afternoon. And that's the way this works in Paul's world. It goes on. It leaves us, and it's foolish of us to hold on to it. And, but notice, notice what Paul doesn't deny. Paul doesn't deny that you and I need power and want power in our lives. He just shifts the anchor point of power. He shifts it away from something that's vacuous and something that's fleeting, and he acknowledges that human beings, all of us here, will crave some sense of control in our world, will crave this power in our world. Power is the thing that makes us feel safe, it makes us feel grounded, it helps us to find satisfaction and joy. And as I told you at the beginning of the sermon, there's a place for power in your life. There's a place to hold on to it. Paul's not going to deny this. He doesn't deny that need, but what he does is he redirects you. He redirects us to the source of all power in the world. He redirects us to a, a foundation of power that does hold us forever, that keeps us safe no matter what the world strips away from us. And we have, you know, we all have this strange fascination with controlling the world around us while forgetting that there is a world that is beyond us. We want to control just what's right here, but in the midst of that, we sort of forget that there's this world out there beyond us that we can't control or that we can't hold on to. And what the Hebraists are saying is, I'm good with God. I've, I've controlled every element of my life right here. I'll be good. You do you. I'll do me. We'll be fine. And that's what we do sometimes. We sort of circle into our own little, little pattern of heaven right here. But there are two things that Paul highlights happen when we do this. Whenever our view of the world just becomes our view of the world, Number one, it works well until it doesn't work well. It's fine until you bump up against a boundary where it's not fine. And then you start to realize that you've lost control, 
you've lost your satisfaction, you've lost joy in the world. And so it's fine as long as you're right within that bubble, but if you accidentally step outside of that bubble, you've lost the satisfaction. But the second thing, it, it, works, it all works well until it doesn't work well, but the second thing is, it works well for me, but not for anybody else beyond me. And Paul's asking us to stretch our world out, to see beyond me into another world, and Paul knows this from his own experience. He's experienced this in the world. He has ultimately, where he's at right now, suffered the loss of everything in his life. His sense of security, gone, blown up. He doesn't have any security in him anymore. All the relationships that he thought he had, right now he's separated from them, and even though his letters are going back, there's no letters coming in. He doesn't know what's happening with any of the relationships. And he's counted them, as he says, all loss, doesn't matter, counted it all loss in my life in order to gain the one thing that's important, Christ. And he did it all because he knew that in Christ, we gain a world that we never had, and we lose a prison that we called the world. In Christ, we gain a brand new world, a perspective on the world, a growth in the world that we didn't think was possible, and we're finally set free from the prison that is our life, the prison that keeps us bound up by our addictions and chains, the prison that keeps us bound to our own understandings of joy and how we find it in the world. And Christ opens up for us a world of possibilities, either that you have never imagined in your life or that you thought were just fairy tales. But the moment that we come in contact with Christ, something new happens Christ starts to reveal the limits of the world that we thought were so big. Right? He starts to open this brand new world up for us, and he introduces us to what I would call the upside-down kingdom, a kingdom where if you want to gain, you have to lose. If you want joy for yourself, you secure it for others. And Paul becomes so enamored with this new understanding of power that when he sits down to write this letter, he can't help but encourage everybody else who's reading it to try it on for themselves. Like, he's going to explain it in chapter 3, and he's going to say, this is what I've chosen to do. But in chapter 2, he says, why don't you try it? If you want to make my joy complete, do this. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Look at each, look each of you, not at your own interests, but to the interests of others who are among you. And this is completely upside down. This is not what you would expect from someone who's in prison, right? Someone who's in prison because of the faith. If I was going to write a letter to someone outside of the prison, I'd be like, hide your kids, hide your family, hide your husbands. They're all coming from me. You're going to die, right? That's what I would say. But Paul doesn't do that. He says, don't, don't just look out for your own interests in this season of struggle. Look out for others. Turn your eyes for others and look to their interests. Paul's advice is the complete opposite of what you and I would often do. When trials come, don't focus on what you want. He says, focus on what others need. Focus on where the need is around you. And we take on this new approach, because not because you know, Jesus just commands us to do this. We actually take on this new approach because this is what Jesus modeled for us. And Paul wants to let you know that. He says, look, y'all gather for church every Lord's Day, whether that's Saturday or Sunday, whatever it is back then. You gather up, you sing this song. Let me remind you of what you sing. And then he quotes to them this song that they sang every Sunday when they gathered. Let the same mind be in you that it was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. He took on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, being found in human form. And he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Paul says, y'all sing this every Sunday. 
Y'all sing this every time you get together. You remember this song, don't you? We've passed it on. This is what Jesus did for us. He didn't assume that he should hold all power in his hand, but he gave it away, and he did it for everyone else. Here's the Savior of the universe who has all power at disposal in his hands, and yet the Savior of the universe chooses to give it away, to give it out to someone else. And in giving it away, he shows you and I a brand new way to relate with power in the world. He demonstrates for you and me that the greatest power that we hold is the power to empower someone else. The greatest joy that you can have in your life is the ability to give joy to someone else. To be the one who can offer that gift to them. And to sacrifice for yourself for just a minute so that someone else can have the power. So that someone else can be in control. So that someone else can find joy and satisfaction in the world that they're living in. And we all, we all have this choice to make when it comes to power. Power is always within our grasp. It's always right there. And we can either do one of two things. We can either choose to serve our self, and by extension maybe serve our family and those around us, or we can lay it all aside. We can lay all of that power aside and we can find our joy wrapped up in the way that we choose to empower others around us. And you know what? I don't know if any, there's a beautiful podcast that's out right now that I've followed. It's The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, but in one of the recent episodes, they talked about the fact that, that Mother Teresa and Princess Diana were both recognized as the most famous women in the world uh, at the time that they were living, when Diana was still around. They were both recognized simultaneously as the most powerful women in the world, most well-known women in the world. And what's interesting about our society, and, and I love the way they spell this out in the podcast, everybody wants to be Diana, right? But it's absolutely impossible. Only one person could be, well, we thought only one person could be married to Charles. I guess it turns out two people can be married to Charles. Only one person at the time could be married to Charles, <laughs> Only one person can have the good looks that Diana had. But every single one of us could be a Mother Teresa. Every single one of us could choose to live our lives in such a way that we give ourselves away. That's the path to sainthood. That's the path to emptying oneself on behalf of everyone else. And you know, the truth is, is when history sits down to write its notes about those who've gone on before us, they don't just sit down to write notes about the stakeholders and the rich and famous. I mean, those, those names probably get written down somewhere. But generally speaking, the stories we love to tell as a society are not those where we just talk about those who have held power. It's those stories where we talk about those who've chosen to give it away. Those who sometimes, in fact, within the context of Christianity, we often tell the stories of those who have ended up in prison because they've given that power away. I've talked to you each week about a different person who's ended up in prison, and Martin Luther King Jr. was certainly one of those individuals who ended up in prison. For the benefit of others, he chose to lay aside his power. He was a well-educated man. He, he, he had all the education that he could get in that time. He was brilliant, and yet he chose to live his life in sacrifice of others who didn't have the same power as him. And at times it cost him dearly. At times, it cost him the connection with his family. He had a very troubled marriage because of some of the decisions he made, and and his family had had troubles at times. And early on in his career, we actually get a letter that he writes from prison, not to to the masses, not to the church, but a letter he writes to his wife, Coretta Scott. And on this particular occasion, he was in prison for four months 
But he got locked up at that time in Atlanta, or he got arrested in Atlanta after a sit-in. Um, and here's, here's what he said. I just want to read you a, a short portion of this letter. It's only three paragraphs in length. I love how he ends it. He actually asked her to bring a radio if she comes. Like, look, you don't break, forget anything else. Just bring a radio. I need to listen to something. But here's how he starts it. He says, hello, darling. Today I find myself a long way from you and the children. I'm at the state prison in Reedsville, which is about 230 miles from Atlanta. They picked me up in the DeKalb jail at about 4 o'clock this morning. I realize this whole experience is very difficult for you to adjust to, especially given the fact that you're pregnant right now. But as I said to you yesterday, this is the cross that we must bear for the freedom of our people. So I urge you to be strong in the faith. And this will in turn give strength, give power to me. I can assure you that it's extremely difficult for me to think of being away from you and my Yoki and Marty for four whole months. But I'm asking God every single hour to give me the power of endurance. I have the faith to believe that this excessive suffering that is now coming to our family will in some little way serve to make Atlanta a better city, to make Georgia a better state, and to make America a better country. How it'll do that, I don't know yet. But I have faith to believe it will. And if I'm correct, then our suffering is not in vain. You see, he had discovered that the greatest way to hold on to one's power is to start to use one's power for the betterment of others. And so even in a place, and this wasn't the only letter he wrote from jail, many of you are probably familiar with his letters from a Birmingham prison. This is sort of the bigger area of him writing. He wrote lots of letters from prison and got them out there. But in the context of this early space, what I love about that letter is that he brings home the struggle that is real for all of us. The struggle that's real for all of us when it comes to sacrifice and power is the small world that's right around us. And this isn't a letter to the masses. This is a letter to his wife. A woman who's sitting at home pregnant right now, and because he chose to go and sit in a, in a restaurant, she has to deal without him for four months. Possibly giving birth to their child before he can even come home. And he's like, this is the space that God has called me to. This is the sacrifice that I'm living into for the sake of the gospel. And as I said earlier, we all have power within our hands, all of us. It's all there for us to hold on to. And it's all there for us to do something with. You're never going to get to a space in your life where you do not have power and control over something. The question how will you utilize that power for others? This is the difference between having joy consistently in your life and having it seasonally. I won't deny the fact that if you hold on to that power for yourself, there'll be moments of joy. But what I will say is it'll be like a roller coaster in your life of ups and downs. You have control for a while, you lose it. You have control for a while, you lose it. You have control for a while, you lose it. And the invitation of the gospel is to learn to control that power in such a way that you use it for others so that you can constantly be giving that out and feeling the rewards 
and a steady, consistent pattern of satisfaction in your life. And I think it's very fitting this morning that we do end around this table. Around this table, we remember, once again, that this isn't just a command from our Lord. It's the model that He sets for us. It's the way that He patterns His life on behalf of all of us. That He would give up His power for you. That He would sacrifice His place in heaven for a season so that you might experience life and life more abundantly with Him now and in the power of the resurrection. And so as we gather around this table this morning, we once again gather in such a way that we remember the sacrifice that models for us the way that we can live our lives as well. Would you pray with me this morning? Gracious God, we thank you for the sacrifice of your life on behalf of us all. We come before you this morning once again seeking your mercy and grace in our lives and asking God that you would meet us at this place. As we today on this World Communion Sunday gather with Christians around the world to celebrate at your table, we remember that your call is not just for us, but it's for the whole world. It's for the entire created universe to come into order with you, to find its life surrendered at your feet. Gracious God, meet us at this table once more and transform our hearts to be more like you. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen.